Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles again this week to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 will be our focus. Those verses are printed for you on the outline. Colossians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a very young church, young in the faith, that is. Uh, They come from a a part of the region that uh, was overlaid with all sorts of pluralism, very much like our day. That is, varying and vying faiths, competing for one's allegiance, all sorts of ways to live. In fact, the prevailing message probably would be uh, not any one thing is the real thing. Uh, So if you were to adhere to something that would claim to be the real thing, that would rise up in the face of what else was out there, very much like today. Uh, Everyone should be able to believe whatever they want to believe. Just whatever you do, don't believe something that excludes someone else. Uh, Well, this is not new. This is something that is true uh, of all history. Certainly, this is the case in the first century. As Paul writes to the new Colossian believers, uh, remember the context. He salutes them with uh, reference to his apostleship, his authority, but also reminds them that they have been reconciled by Christ And in a wider sense, that Christ has come to reconcile by his blood, his death on the cross, all things. But now verses 21 down to verse 23 focus more closely on you and I in our need of reconciliation and the provision of it by Christ. Hear God's word, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, I I pray, please, Lord, that you would let me preach Christ. Amen. This text comes on the heels of some of the most powerful Christocentric verses in all the New Testament. Verses 15 through 20 probably embody a a hymn or a doctrinal statement given by baptismal candidates who are just coming to the faith. And all this about Christ in these verses before it brings it down to the personal once again about us and our sin and our need of reconciliation with God and our need to trust in Christ and to continue on in Christ. Really, what we learn from this passage is that we have been reconciled to God by Christ, and we also recognize why that's the case. We've been reconciled to God through Christ for God's glory. Now, I'm ecstatic about the fact that I will not go to the place of eternal judgment and torment, which I believe is a real place. I'm ecstatic that I will not go there in Christ. But that's not the primary reason why God saves people for himself. He does so for his own glory. For his great glory. And we are the beneficiaries of this. And it's a wonderful benefit indeed. It's glorious. It's worthy of worshiping him. But let's not ever forget that ultimately the plan of God is for his own glory. Uh, A few months ago I put uh, a placard up here that you can't see that's up here on the pulpit. So Nathan and I and anyone else who comes up to preach or lead worship or happens to be back here. They will see the five solas of the Reformation. And the reason why I chose those because it all is based on this reality that the reformers recognized the need for us to be living and worshiping for the glory of God. Solo Dea Gloria, for the glory of God. 
Everything else about the Reformation feeds that thought, that everything we ought to do, everything we ought to say, our relationships, our activities, our actions, our work, all ought to be focused on the glory of God. We know this by the Scripture. The Scripture alone teaches us what we need to know about Christ, about grace, about faith. All for the glory of God. Why are we saved? We are saved unto God for good works. We're saved for His glory, to be presented holy and blameless as an offering of worship to the Lord. This brief passage reminds us of this profound reality and at the same time confronts every one of us individually. Where are we in Christ today? Where are we? Question worthy of asking every day. Let's look at the passage, just how it breaks it down. Starting at verse 21, it starts at the point that I I desperately wish and desire the church as a whole would return to starting with. Our condition apart from Christ. I, I say this because I'm afraid that so much of the message, while it's not completely unchristian, but so much of the message we hear today is focused more on really the happiness that we can have in life or the ease we can have in life. And we've gotten to the point where we've presented that at the forefront so much that people have forgotten what they truly need at the base level is salvation from their sins. And so Paul, starting here, begins with this vivid picture. Starting at verse 19, working to verse 21, follow as I read. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking of Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the general application of his reconciliation. Now verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he's turning from the wider work of God's reconciliation in Christ. Now he's turning to the specific believer. So the believer at Colossae may have heard the first time, uh, as He's read the first 20 verses and thought in general way how this applies. But now, and you, who were once hostile in mind, enemies of God, essentially. Now they're perking up, and I hope we're perking up, because this is to us as well. There's two levels in which this applies to us. One, first-generation believers. The first, time, uh, the, the, the first time you ever heard the name of Christ and came to Christ, there's a sense in which you vividly understand what it means to be in hostile mind. Uh, you've had the hostile mind and you recognize it. But there's some who've always known the name of Christ. For us, all of us relate with this in this way. This is speaking about the general state of mankind apart from Christ. The general state of fallen man. After sin enters the garden, Adam falls. Every human being after Adam has experienced, at least by extension, at least by extension, what it is to be hostile in mind. Now, praise God if you're someone who's always known Christ. And you can't say explicitly, I remember having a hostile mind towards God. But recognize you are part of mankind, and sinful humanity has been affected by this. You're part of that. And there's really vestiges in you, even if you don't recognize it, that will relate with. And I think if you think long and hard enough about it, you could see how that be a road or a path you would take if left in your natural state. But this passage begins with a very honest assessment of our condition. I call it the ugliness of our lives without Christ. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Please note, it doesn't say, and you who needed a little cleaning up, or, you know, weren't that well off, or, you know, had some flaws. It doesn't say that in simple terms. You were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now let's consider these three designations given by the apostle here. First, it says you were alienated. Sinful mankind, apart from Christ, Man is estranged from God. 
Now, it's not the same as being a stranger from God. A stranger would be two people milling around in a room. They see each other but don't know each other. Okay, that, that's two strangers. Estrange means to be put in a place of a stranger, although you were related. That's what it means to be alienated, taken apart from. You had fellowship with, but now you don't have fellowship with. It's, it's more violent, if you will, estrangement is, rather than just being strangers. And that's what we are with God. We were once in relationship with him as human beings, but now we're out of relationship with him because of sin that all of us have. Out of fellowship with God, our creator. You were, he says to these Colossian believers, you were out of fellowship with God. You were estranged. You were opposed to him. But notice what it says. It's not that we're just alienated and off segregated from God. There's also something at work. Please recognize this because often we think that people who don't know of God or believe in some other religion, that they're, they're good people or they're, they're not hostile to God. That's not what the scripture says. Not only are they alienated, but they're hostile in mind. And so even the belief in another system is actually an action or an activity of hostility towards the true God. As devout as it looks, it's actually an act of enmity against the true God. What looks like devout religiosity is actually shaking the fist in the hand of the true and living God. You are hostile in mind, not sulking off in the corner, ostracized, but rather a person shaking their fist, wanting to attack God if they could. It means when we're hostile in mind that our minds are fixed against God. That fallen man stands in defiant, committed opposition to God. That's what it means, that they were alienated and that they're hostile in mind. Thirdly, it says also, doing evil deeds. Please notice the way this is all one sentence. They're meant to go together. They're dependent upon one another. Hostility in mind always, always manifests itself in actions and activities. From the heart wells the issues of life. In other words, what's really in your heart is what will come out. And so a hostile mind towards God will, in effect, produce only that which it is capable of producing, which is evil works, evil deeds. That's the utter ugliness of man's condition apart from Christ. When we have something in our heart or our mind is hostile, it is not left there in a secret place. It works itself out eventually. One commentator says it so well. Wrong thinking leads to vice. Vice to further mental corruption to the point that the mind begins to applaud evil. What started out as something that's clearly not right, slowly but surely gains its foothold and man's depraved nature grabs hold of it and feeds it and actually starts to applaud the very thing that it was created to say was wrong. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Man's state is one of estrangement from God in his natural being. His utter hatred towards the Almighty is what feeds his lust, our lust, to sin more and more. Man in his natural state, I want to say this ever so clearly, so clearly in our day, man in his natural state, brothers and sisters, is not good. We are not good. We are depraved. That's a word that's not popular today. And I'm not saying we should uh, all together say three times with me, depraved, depraved, depraved. But think about it for a moment. That's what my heart is apart from Christ. Depraved. That's what it musters up. When left to, its, to my own, I won't do a good thing. Left to my own, I will do whatever worships myself, which is shaking my fist at God. That's what I do naturally. 
That's what all of us did naturally outside of Christ. And even in Christ, the old man rears his head whenever he gets a chance. And it's the war that the Spirit puts down the old man that you have going on in you that causes conviction. Praise God for it. But even the born-again believer today can recognize how deep sin goes as it even rears its head in your own life. But it totally owns the one who has not, who is not in Christ. We are totally and utterly unable to do anything to contribute to our state of affairs. I love what Herman Melville says, who's the author of Moby Dick. Did you know he was a Presbyterian also? It's an important note. Listen to what he says. He hits it on the head. He's not a theologian, but he sure comes close to saying something profoundly theological. He says, And heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. That, my brothers and sisters, whether it ever makes it onto Larry King Live or not, is the truth about man. That's the truth about man. And we will only rest, recognize the need of the gospel and cling to Christ desperately when we see how desperately wicked and deceitful and dark our hearts are. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, I know that phrase resonated in the Colossians' minds because they knew what darkness was like they were living it. Now, some of us have been believers a long time, and it may be difficult for you to remember that darkness, or you haven't experienced it, praise God, at this level. But recognize that God saved you from that then. He saved you from that in a miraculous way that you don't have to. It is not a better thing, in my opinion, to be saved out of all sorts of debauchery. It's a much better thing to be born into the covenant and claim Christ as you're growing up and never know a day where you didn't know Jesus. But recognize to you, that person, it's an awesome transference from one kingdom to another kingdom that took place for you just as it did for anyone else. I want to just address one question that always arises in my mind when I read Paul in this way. And what I mean by this is you hear Paul saying here, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. Maybe some of you, the people I just addressed, are saying, I've always been a believer. I mean, I was baptized in the church. I've trusted Christ. I, I know I sin. I've rebelled at times. But I don't remember personally ever being hostile in mind or being do doing just wicked deeds. I understand that my deeds are not good on their own and only in Christ. I've always known that. Well, how does this passage speak to you? Well, this isn't the only time Paul speaks to us in this way. In Ephesians 2, he says, And you were dead in the tra and trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul says, in a general way, everyone in the church has some relationship to that life. He says later in Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Again, covenant children who've grown up confessing and professing Christ, you probably don't remember passing your days in envy and malice. I'm telling you, if that's the case, that is great grace that God would save you from that experience. But you are still by association and connection united to the greater sinful human race. And for you, it's a salvation from the full manifestation of that, that state of life. And you should give praise, too, for what you've been saved from. You're not missing something. You've been saved from something. And that's a profound reality. This is true because you remember David said about God and about salvation, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. From the time of his nursing, 
God made David believe in him. Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. These are covenant children who were born and raised trusting in in God's Redeemer. But for them, it is no less precious and special from what you've been saved. And for those of you who've been saved as first-generation believers, you know what darkness is. You know what alienation is. You know what it is to be hostile in mind. You know what wicked deeds are. You know, brothers and sisters, when I think of wicked deeds, you know, you don't have to turn on the TV very many weeks to find that, don't you? How about this week? Was this not one of the worst that you've seen in recent times? When you think back to what happened in Colorado in that school with a madman shooting down these, these kids, these girls, this congressman who has acted as he has acted in such a wicked way, and even, more, and even in the midst of all this in this school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where there's another terrible shooting. Listen, these are not because someone has a disorder. This is not because someone is ill or someone's sick. This is because they're totally depraved and apart from Christ. That's why they didn't do it because they were oppressed. They didn't do it because they were you know, hurt when they were a kid. They did it because they were acting out of who they are as depraved human beings. And there's only one person that changes someone. That's Christ. And even the Christian will battle, will battle what wells up in them to try to feed the natural man. It's a, it's, it is a battle raging within us. And you know what? I've come to the conclusion in my life, and I remember distinctly, brothers and sisters, distinctly thinking, especially as a young believer, that there were definitely sins I would never commit. I distinctly remember sitting in college, listening to people talk, or hearing about this or that minister falling, or this, thinking that would never happen to me. I know these are issues that will happen, that I'll struggle with. But these are issues that, that no way. Where I've come to now is this. There are sins that I, am, I don't think I'm as prone to, but I definitely think I can commit them. If I think of them, I can commit them. That's the, that's the fact of who, how, how wicked and dark we are. I always was bothered by what Paul said. Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst, he says. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Go easy. You got a basilica named after yourself, a huge one, multi-billion dollar building. Certainly, you are not the worst of sinners. Paul, think of all the people that thought of you and what they thought of you. The holy apostle you're called. Why would you say that you are, in fact, the chief of sinners? Well, it was about the third time that I led the Lord's Supper where it dawned on me as I said those very words, this table is for sinners, not for, not for people who don't think they need a Savior, that it hit me personally that there are things about my heart that are so bad and so dark and so wicked that there's no way, no way any of you could be worse. But the fact is that should be every one of our experiences when we really analyze it because there's things we will not share with one another. We wouldn't dare. I'm the chief of sinners. You should be able to say the same thing and mean it, totally, truthfully, because you can't imagine how anyone else could be that dark. From a young age, I remember having that certain sense of darkness about my being. And it was only Christ, even at a young age, I remember Christ who gave me freedom from that, who made me believe that I could be cleaned up, that I could be changed, that I could be useful. In my most useful moments are moments when I dwell again on what verse 21 so clearly and honestly says, that I was alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But brothers and sisters, comes now the glorious gospel of grace. Just like in Ephesians when it says, but God who is rich in mercy, we read here, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now 
reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen. From the state of complete estrangement and alienation to the state of reconciliation, open access to God. The reason why it's so important that we are honest about total depravity is that it gives Christ his proper place of perfect holiness and glory. And when I see myself in all my blackness, then I see, then I see the beauty of Jesus. Then I see what he has done by offering his beauty, his body for me. Recall in verse 20 where we read of him giving his, the blood of his cross. Now we read his body of flesh. We need a sacrifice for our sins in the flesh. Our alienation from God must be remedied. Our estrangement from God has to be cured. Our hostility to God has to be rectified. The only sacrifice that can do all this is Christ, nothing else. You know, there are multiple reasons for the salvation of fallen sinful men and women. But there's no greater reason than the one that is alluded to here in the second part of verse 22. Notice why it is that he has reconciled us to God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a difference between what I was before Christ and who I am in Christ. Before, alienated, separate, hostile, a blasphemer. Now, blameless, holy, set apart for him. And above reproach. Think of those terms for a moment, because they're powerful. Each one builds on the next. In order to present you holy, what is holiness? It's to be set apart. It's to be sanctified but to be specially identified as an instrument of specialness. What is blameless? Blameless is to not be guilty of any crime legally. Blameless. Can't blame me for anything. What is above reproach? This is the one I like the most. It means you're unaccused or not able to be accused. You know, there's always that kid that didn't do it, but he just looks like he did it. I was one of those kids, you know. No one else knew it. Let's, tone, let's blame Tony. But in the eyes of God through Christ, you don't even appear like you could be accused. That's powerful. Holy, blameless, above reproach. Christ dying for us, his life for us, changes us from dirty, guilty, hostile blasphemers to holy and blameless proclaimers of God's glorious grace. And I love what it says in the beginning of the second phrase of verse 22, in order to present you. Do you, do you ever thought what Jesus is doing in the work on his work on earth and his work on the, on the cross is he's working to present you to the father. Now, what does this mean? The father has given the son sheep, John 10. He's given to the son a people to save to clean, to cleanse. It's a particular people. It's a specific people to the Son. And the Son takes the people, represents them perfectly, dies for them on the cross, and says to the Father, I've not lost one that you've given to me. And he presents to the Father a holy church, cleansed by his blood, totally his work. That's what it means to present you holy and blameless. You know, when I think of uh, presentation, I think of, how hard we work at certain things so that they look good in front of other people. But really, at the heart of these things, there's something good that happens often. I know whenever we have a guest over, my wife works frantically to prepare the house to get it clean. And me not being as cleanly, or what's the word? Uh, not as clean. 
uh, when I think of the house, I think of it as just, boy, there's a lot of stuff. You know, they're only going to come downstairs. They're only going to be in the living room. They're only going to be in the, this room in the kitchen. So, you know, why do we got to clean the upstairs bedroom bathroom? I mean, do you really think it's necessary? Well, in her view, it's a whole household. And even though someone won't see it, it's an act of, it, that's natural to her. And I can tell you, I'm there. She doesn't complain about it. She goes about it in a way that's part of what she does when someone's coming. Why? Because when that person comes, in a sense, it's a presentation to them of how valuable she thinks they are. By having the place clean and looking nice, this is her statement saying, you are special and I want this place to be right for you. When the Lord Jesus takes the church, he cleans us up by the blood of his cross. Perfectly. There's not a little blemish left. There's not anything. Perfectly. And he presents us to the Father because he loves the Father so much. He gives the Father only that which is clean and holy and blameless, and it's us. The reason you have security is because the Father so loves the Son, and because the Son so loves the Father, not because you love God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross. He presents us this way because he loves his Father. There is great security. If you are struggling with doubt and fear, you're struggling because you wonder, do I love God enough? Do I love Jesus enough? Let me rest, rest you assured. It has nothing to do with you loving God. It has to do with God loving his son, his son loving his father, and you are a token of that love between the two that can never be broken. And there's no greater security than that. Then, now, because of that, you can love God. Finally, verse 23. In a wonderful balance of what the Christian life is like, it doesn't just leave it there. It says we have responsibility. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, these things are true. And the way you know they're true is if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Now, if you would read verse 23, you would say that's an if statement there. That means it's all conditioned upon you doing this. That's fine if there wasn't a verse 1 through 21. Verse 22, maybe I'd think that. But it's so clearly all the sovereign act of God to this point that it doesn't stop to be. But what we have here is a real pastoral charge that, by the way, if you want to know if you are a believer, if indeed you keep trusting Christ, that's how you'll know. It's a faith given to you by God, and it will persevere to the end. Let me be very clear about this. Absolutely, anyone who's truly one of God's people, who's been truly born again, they will never lose that status. Ever. Impossible. However, in this life, our experience of it, <coughs> our appreciation of it, only comes as we persist in trusting in Jesus. It's given by God. That's the heavenly truth. The earthly reality, though, is how we experience assurance is by a consistent, constant faith in Christ and his work. That's what it says. If you continue in the faith, what's the faith? The faith, simply put, is belief in Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, dependence in Christ for eternity, for the forgiveness of your sins for all eternity. If you continue in that trust, in that faith, stable and steadfast, always trusting this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. What it's saying is that as we continue in the faith, it means that we continue trusting Christ. 
It doesn't say that if you continue to do these good works, you will be sure of your salvation. It says if you trust. Now what the rest of Colossians is going to start to tell us is what those works look like that flow out of a true saving relationship. But please recognize what my encouragement to you consistently must be and to myself is to always trust Christ for salvation. You know, this is something I would just put out to you to really think about and analyze. I know many of us have come to Christ in various ways, but the one way I want you to challenge is if you're one of those people that remember, you know, 10 years ago, I remember at a particular speaker uh, service or whatever, I prayed a prayer and I received Jesus, and, so, and, and, and that's what I'm basing my salvation on. Now, don't misunderstand me. That's powerful. Praise God. Testimonies are important. But if what your faith is in is what you did 10 years ago in praying a prayer, filling out a card going forward, I would suggest to you that's not a biblical way of gaining assurance. A biblical way is to say, praise God for what happened back then, but what happened back then, is it true today? Or do I trust Jesus now? Because your faith is not in a profession you made, your faith is in Christ. And that's something that needs to be preached to ourselves every single day. In fact, the way I try to think in terms of training kids is to teach them from the earliest age that they are God's people based on him placing them in this place, this covenant family. And their obligation is to trust Christ for salvation alone, not for their membership here, not because they're part of your family, this church, or whatever they do, but because they trust Christ. And so from the earliest age, all they understand is how they must trust Christ for their sin. And so every day before your child puts their head on their pillow and goes to sleep, whisper in their ears, trust Jesus. Trust Christ. He will never leave you, forsake you. Even when you have a bad day as a parent, you could say, you know what? God's not like me. I'm working on it. I'm trying. The Lord needs to help. But God will never leave you, forsake you. He trusts. He, you could place your trust in him. And always, always, you will never be, never be disappointed. The work of God's grace perseveres because it's God's work. And we continue in the faith by his grace. And continuing in the faith, I just ask you today, if you're here with doubt and you wonder, I just want to ask you simply an answer in your heart, do you trust Christ? Do you trust Christ? Now, maybe you're miserable right now because you're in sin. You know you're in sin. You're God's child and you're rebelling and he's causing gracious conviction to come upon you. That's a good thing. Don't stay in it. Respond to the repentance he has granted. But recognize the question for you to ask today is do you trust Christ right now, this moment? I love what Augustine said so long ago. He said, it is not that we keep his commandments first and that he then loves us, but that he loves us and then we keep his commandments. This is that grace which is revealed to the humble but hidden from the proud. Augustine said later, God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. Wonderful challenge to us as we consider the words of Paul, so encouraging, so clearly God wrought. At the same time, we must persist in our trust in Christ. I love what one theologian said more technically. Perseverance of the saints teaches that once God has renewed the heart of a sinner through the application of the redemption wrought by Christ upon the cross, he will continue to be saved and show forth the fruits of that salvation. The sinner perseveres because of Christ, but he continually shows himself as one who has been changed by Christ. God has saved the individual and will sanctify him or her until the end, when he is ultimately glorified and in heaven. Brothers and sisters, as we read this passage, I think we have to do a gut check about what makes us anxious. What 
concerns us, what we spend so much time with. I fear that we are so concerned what everyone else thinks about us, what culture thinks about us, what our neighbor's doing or what our neighbor has. Listen, does this not put all that into proper perspective? That what we are to be about is living a life that totally and utterly says thank you to God for grace. Grace in itself, you can't pay back, so give that one up. But you can say thank you. And the way you say thank you is by the life you live, by the priorities you keep, by the kingdom you are attempting to be part of the building up. Every day demands a fresh consideration of the gospel message and how it should be lived out. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful three verses, and they keep getting, I don't want to say better because they're all so good. But as you read Colossians, it doesn't ever slow down. It's like a train coming at you about the supremacy of Jesus. I hope we never get enough of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Christ for your work on the cross. And Holy Spirit sent forth from the Father and the Son to apply the work of the Son to those who have been ordained. God, even as I say these words, I am stricken with, with a humility that can only be wrought by you, and I realize there is no earthly reason why I should be here redeemed. God, thank you. Pray that we would be so profoundly impacted by the reality of the forgiveness of our sins that our life could not possibly look the same as we walk out of this place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A wonderful hymn.